And welcome back to another episode of Kolo. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolal. And it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you back to our next episode featuring Moshe Yachnis. Uh, Moshe Yachnis is someone who spends a lot of his uh, time in the field of addiction, treatment, and recovery. And we're going to learn a little bit about his work, how he helps people, not just, um, not just help people survive, but also thrive in their recovery. Um, we learned a little bit about uh, what is clinical addiction, um, what are some of the myths that apply to that, and something called religious trauma. So stay tuned for all of that right here on Colot. To sponsor a Colot episode, email me, sponsorcolot at gmail.com. Once again, email me at sponsorcolot at gmail.com. This episode's sponsor is Restart. Restart is a career development platform which offers complimentary access to log in and work with live career advisors who will help find meaningful employment opportunities that match what you are looking for. To learn more, visit www.joinrestart.com. Once again, www.joinrestart.com and learn about your employment opportunities today. But without any further ado, Allow me to tell you about our guest. Moshe Yachmas is known for his visionary approach in building organizations through strategic leadership within the healthcare space. He has a proven track record of successful patient outcomes by com- combining his clinical knowledge and ability to successfully track and direct function area leads. He is known for his hands-on leadership approach and works closely with his team on a daily basis ensuring evidence-based clinical protocols are implemented throughout the full continuum of care. 20 years ago, Moshe began his career working in a Jewish adolescent treatment program while attending Fordham University Graduate School for clinical social work with a primary focus on addiction treatment. He is a licensed clinical social worker with multiple specialty trainings and has been educating the community on the struggles people face with addiction for the past two decades. Moshe's experiences include private practice psychotherapy, primary therapist, clinical director, director of operations, and now CEO of a small portfolio to residential and outpatient treatment programs. Moshe lives with his wife, Ahuva, and their four children in Boca Raton, Florida. Moshe Yachnes, thank you so much for joining Kolot. Thank you so much. I'm humbled and grateful to be here, and um, it's a real pr- pleasure uh, for having me. I'm excited to learn and to discuss um, more about addiction and to have a conversation today on the Colot uh, Network. Thank you. So I guess as a way of introduction, please tell us a little bit about your background and specifically how you got into this field of addiction. Sure. So um, it's, it's interesting, actually. Um, my initial exposure to the world of recovery and, and really uh, behavioral health started really as a child. I grew up as a kid. My parents are both community people. Uh, my father is a uh, well-respected mechanic in the South Florida area. My mother's a resource room teacher. And uh, really growing up as a kid, we had community members and people, friends of the family coming by. And, and I remember as a child seeing people walking into our house, you know, crying and, and leaving smiling. 
and and that was very influential and i i think uh plays a strong role in um in, in kind of the trajectory if you will of how things evolved um but fast forward a couple of years later and um i was learning in yeshiva and i had opportunity to work in a um an adolescent dual diagnosis um rehab program it's called the yatskin center um it was originally inspired with a lot of direction of Dr. Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Torsky Zatzal and um, Lou Abrams, I uh, was a de- dear friend, um, somebody I respect very much, was the director of the program at that point. And um, it was it was a great opportunity. I, I actually joined the, the organization as a Shabbos counselor, uh, just, you know, to help be there for Shabbos, to give chizik to the guys. And what I saw there really inspired, um, inspired me to, to kind of do this full time, um, just being there for the weekend, seeing uh, the courage of these individuals was so inspiring, um, you know, just navigating the pain and confusion in their lives. Um, it was then that I decided to, you know, to, to train professionally um, to become a clinical social worker. And, uh, you know, that's that's really the beginning stages of, of how things evolved for me. So yeah. we're going to dive deep on a lot of different things. Okay. And maybe for starters, can you define addiction? It's very commonly used. Oh, I'm addicted to this. I'm addicted to that. Yes. Um, so clinically speaking, can you give sure. a definition? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I like how you asked, uh, you asked it as well, because I think it's important initially to differentiate between an addict and an individual struggling with addiction. And I think by defining addiction, we'll soon learn that there is a difference uh, between the individual who perhaps many people label as an addict and an individual who's struggling with addiction. Um, addiction is really, um, if you have to break down addiction, I would say it's a, it's a relationship with a substance or behavior that is pathological. Um, it's self-destructive. Um, very often, obviously, when you think about addiction, you think in terms of drug use, you think in terms of alcohol dependency. Um, and I think it's important to differentiate between experimentation between use, abuse, and dependency. And those are the different levels. Um, really, if I had to come, you know, kind of develop it into one, one phrase or one sentence, it is a toxic relationship with a mind-altering experience. Um, and, and when the consequences um, continue to build associated with that experience, then it becomes an, an addictive or an addiction. Um, so some of the indicators that we look at is, let's say, you know, take a bottle of alcohol as an example, right? So if a person um, is experiencing um, an increased need to use that alcohol, or if there's a dependency that starts to build, uh, attempts to stop, right? Um, and, and not being able to stop, uh, the level of use, the intensity of that use, and the consistency of that use are all uh, components of, of, you know, indicators that we look at to define addiction. Okay. So does it have to be something um, for, for one to be addicted to something, to have addiction, does one have to, does it have to be a product that is um, mind altering? That is like a substance. And in other words, there are opioids, which is like, I guess, you know, very textbook um, type of addiction. And then there's, yeah caffeine and sugar, right? So are those things that could also lead to a real serious addiction? 
Yeah, so I think that that's also a great point to differentiate between a physiological dependency and an emotional dependency. Uh, you know, the way the way we conceptualize it, the way I, I view it as is the relationship with that substance, with that item, with that experience. Um, we know that there is substance abuse that leads to addiction, and then there's processing addiction, which is you know overuse of of internet stimuli or gambling. Um, those are obviously they're not substance related, but the the neurochemical reactivity is very similar to that of an opiate addiction. So it's really about looking at the relationship between the individual and that escape, um, why they're running towards it, what are they using that experience to um, to gain from it. Uh, we call addiction the flawed solution, right? It's an attempt to resolve something. A person is battling confusion, pain, trauma, um, trying to modulate their mood, their affect. All of these things are making them pretty uncomfortable. And when they find that escape route and then they become dependent on that escape route, that's where the definition of addiction comes into play. And are there certain personalities that are more prone to addiction than others? Or is it a, is it a level playing field or not? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's, I mean, the answer is across the board there. You have certain individuals that are maybe prone to addiction based on certain um, chemical imbalances. Certain, certain people have, you know, different traumatic experiences um, that might make them prone. Um, there's definitely an ongoing debate between nature and nurture, all right? Is there, a, a, you know, a dopamine deficiency that's, uh, that's neurobiological, if you will? Um, or is there, you know, that's on the, on, the, on the nature, so to speak, side of the debate. Or is there nurture? Uh, perhaps it's a learned behavior. Perhaps somebody, a child grows up in a home where they're seeing their, you know, their, their parents or whoever is, 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 is their, you know, knight in shining armor, if you will, um, escaping um, and numbing themselves and avoiding certain emotions with an activity or a substance. They could be watching sports and they can be addicted, you know, to the TV. Um, and the reason why that word is used is because to a large degree, a person can become and can develop an addiction towards any type of experience. If they're using it to numb, to avoid, to escape, um, if, if it becomes that flawed solution, then, then yes, I would say that does have some of the characteristics of, of addiction. Okay, so you just used the word escape, and I, I want to jump yeah. on that for a second. Can you differentiate what is escape and what is outlet? Yeah, so I think that the consequence paradigm is what we have to look at. Um, if a person, you know, wants to, at the end of a busy work week or on a Friday night, wants to have, you know, a glass of wine, um, sitting around the Shabbos table, um, and, and the relationship is not being interrupted by that, they're, they're embracing their family dynamic, um, they're maybe, you know, learning the Parsha or singing songs, um, they're experiencing a pleasant environment. And they're having a glass of wine, then I would say that that's fine. There's nothing toxic about that. There's nothing unhealthy about that. Um, but if a person is preoccupied by the stresses of the week, and they can't wait to that Friday night dinner, and they're holding on to that glass of wine in order to, you know, it's like their pacifier because they have to deal with their family or they have guests over and they're, they're, there's a certain inhibition, you know. But if they're using that glass of wine, as an escape to protect them, to avoid the situation, then it's something to look at. 
Um, and it's something to analyze to see if there's something wrong with it or there's an unhealthy relationship with it. So that, that that's how I would differentiate between, you know, an escape versus a break or versus an outlet. Okay, but I would imagine, and I hope I'm not self-projecting here, that some people fall into the in-between category. Meaning to say, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's been a it's been a busy week, and correct. It, you yeah. know, wine is a little more enjoyable in that state than as if everything was not so busy during the week. Um, and yeah, that that glass of wine becomes like even more uh, cherished, if you will. Does that start to creep into addiction territory? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the person. It depends on their environment. It depends on their, you know, again, how they're viewing that glass of wine. Most people probably do fall in the in-between state. Um, some, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, work and life is challenging and overwhelming. And, and people might enjoy to kick back with a glass of wine. But if they find themselves needing that glass of wine, and if they find themselves, um not being fully present with their family because of the glass of wine, then they start to borderline on, on the, on the side of dependency. Mm -hmm. They are literally dependent on that glass of wine to get through the experience of dinner. Um, and, and that would be an indicator to look at. Right. And then a glass becomes glasses and bottle. Correct. And correct. Okay. And that's where exactly that's where, that's how we talked about, you know, substance use versus abuse versus dependency. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain people that they literally can't sit down at a dinner without wine and they can't, they need to, they need to numb themselves because the, they're so uncomfortable emotionally mm -hmm. um, sitting at that dinner table that they can only survive that dinner table with a glass of wine. That's right. something to to look at in a very real way. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, moving on to, how people fall into a few sure. yeah. addiction. What, what are some of the causes? I, no one wants to be in a state where they are hurting themselves. So it's not really a conscious decision. Oh, let me become addicted to something. What are some of the causes, some of the traps? Yeah. So um, very often they're slow and they evolve and develop over years and years and years. Um, very often there's some undercurrent that might not be too intense. Um, Maybe just something, somebody that's a little uncomfortable in social set settings. Um, somebody's a little bit confused about something that they've seen or been exposed to. And they sit in that, they sit with that feeling, they sit in that confusion. Um, and it starts to build and it starts to build. Um, and then, you know, they're in their adolescent years or young adulthood and they, they're at a party or at a simcha or, um, and they, they actually try, you know, they, they, they take you know, a glass of wine or they, you know, smoke a joint or they experience some level of avoidance of what they're, they're kind of processing. And they, and it, and it, it actually is comforting to them. Um, and they like it. Um, they feel certain, you know, I would say it's a flawed sense, but it's a certain sense of relief because they're not coping with that anymore. When you're not feeling and when your feelings are overwhelming and you're not feeling those feelings, it's, it's actually a positive experience. So I would say that that's how the addiction, if you had to create some kind of profile for an addict or as an individual struggling with addiction, I would say it's usually very gradual, very slow. Very often there's, um, you know, we call it the big win early on, right? Where they experienced that high and it was very, and it was actually a very enjoyable experience because they created that escape 
um, for themselves. And, and, and then they do it again and they do it again and they do it again until there is a dependency. Um, very often it's, it's experimentation. You know, they have the, there's maybe some kind of social anxiety or, uh, a, you know, a need to fit in and they'll experiment with, with drugs or alcohol. Um, but, but again, the, the, the individuals that are, you know, have healthy attachments that are grounded and feel secure about themselves. They could even, they could even use drugs and they won't fall into addiction mm-hmm. because it's not about the substance. It's again, about the relationship with that substance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you think about family systems, you think about rigid family systems, you think about the pressures that individuals have to endure. Um, you know, I always, I always say the difference between, you know, you have anxiety, which is like baseline anxiety. Um, you know, you get those envelopes in the mail that require you to pay your electric bill, right? So for some people, they look at that envelope and say, oh boy, I better get out to work, right? Yeah. I have to pay this bill. And it, it actually motivates them to, to be productive. Yeah. And then you have certain people that look at that bill and it paralyzes them. How am I going to pay the bill? I can't do anything. And they stay in bed. That spells the difference between a healthy, productive human being and somebody who's experiencing an anxiety disorder that's paralyzing their ability to function. So I think the same thing is true when it comes to their, their relationship with the substance or this mind-altering experience. Is it something that they feel relief about? Or is it something that, you know, they had a relaxing experience, it was fun, it was enjoyable? You know, it's like the weekends, right? If a person needs a weekend six days a week, mm, it might be a problem. If they're okay enjoying the weekend once a week, then they're okay. Right, right. No, I t- that totally makes sense. So let's get in now into the, you know, different um, items, t- uh, sure. areas where people may um, fall into addiction. So substance is one, um, and that yeah. could be drugs or alcohol, um, gambling, right? Yes. Technology. So can you walk us through like the different levels and, yeah. and we'll get into maybe treatments, et cetera. Sure. Sure. So again, very often it's, um, it's, there's usually a correlation between the drug of choice and the individual that, you know, very often it's linked to a specific trauma um, or some kind of early on exposure. Um, and that's that those are important indicators to when the person gets into recovery and starts to, you know, peel away the layers of the onion and get to the to the to the depth of their of, of what's causing the issue. Um, they want to look at where it stemmed from. Um, but you have substance, which is mind altering. Um, it's abuse of any of the medications you mentioned, opioids, you mentioned, you know, there's anxiety medications, any, any of the medications in the benzodiazepine families uh, where people um, start to abuse those drugs. Um, you have alcohol um, and then you have processing addiction, which processing addiction is more uh, the behavior as opposed to the substance. Um, you have, you know, internet and um, internet addiction or gaming addiction is very um, it has, is really popular now, unfortunately, uh, because of the exposure. Um, I remember studying under Dr. Patrick Carnes, who's a world-renowned expert in, in when it comes to understanding compulsive sexual behaviors and internet pornography addiction. Um, and he talks about internet as the three A's. You have affordability, anonymity, and accessibility, right? If you think about it, right, you don't, you don't have to put on a hoodie and go to a bad neighborhood and purchase something in a brown paper bag. I mean, you, you know, you're on your iPhone sitting at your desk at work um, or relaxing in your living room and you have all the access that you need and no one knows about it. 
Um, and, you know, that's where a lot of the dependency starts to develop um, on the processing addiction side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we could talk more about that if, if that's where, you know. Yeah, no, this, this is this is fascinating. Um, you know, we, we, until recently, we've always assumed, yeah, it's the opioids, it's the painkillers, it's. But now, like technology, which has yeah. always been a you know, which has been around for quite some time, but um, I, I think as technology becomes quicker, um, easier to access, and younger people are accessing yeah. technology, I, I yes. think uh, that opens a lot of doors to this conversation. Yeah, and 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 it really shapes it really shapes the way individuals start to process information. Um, I remember early on. Um, I had a outpatient practice, private practice in um, in Brooklyn, New York, and um, you know the, the my I would say the average client was really somebody struggling with addiction, dependency on drugs or alcohol, um, and it's we started seeing cases more and more where there was this dependency or this overuse of internet of, and, and I remember you know calling. I have a relationship with Shmuel Kamenetsky and. and and others, and I remember speaking with Rosh Hashiva, and he was very encouraging as far as, I remember I traveled out to Arizona and, and did a very comprehensive training, really solely focused on processing addiction, um, to understand, you know, the, the origins of it, to really be able to differentiate between, you know, the overstimulation versus the dependency, and how to how to categorize the, the, the different levels of use, um, what it looks like from the recovery perspective, what the interplay between trauma and, and the internet media, especially in terms of sex addiction. So there was, it's fascinating to see. And, and obviously the client base was younger and younger over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly to your point, because we are introduced to, to media, um, you know, so early and the exposure is, is so much greater. Um, you know, we have something called machine enhanced arousal, which is, if you think about it, Right. Um, technology um, is, is such where, you know, you, you have an, uh, almost like an over indulgence of a certain, you know, a certain image, a certain experience that you can stimulate the mind on a rapid level. And then when you take that experience and you try to mirror it in real life, real life is boring. It's slow. Um, so. You're dealing with different set of challenges nowadays than we, we were seeing 10, 12, 15 years ago. Right. And without that stuff, you're alone. You're by yourself, right? With your Correct. own thoughts, with your own flaws and, you know, not something that people sometimes want to uh, confront. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I remember, you know, it's interesting. Um, the, the founder of Snapchat, I don't know if you just give me one example, which is a platform used for, you know, social media and, and I remember the I read a quote from this from the founder where he talked about um, you know so they were asking about building intimacy and how Snapchat um, kind of throws a monkey wrench into it and one of the things that he was saying is that people are busy building a digital version of themselves that they lose sight of who they really are at their core and and you talk about loneliness I mean I, you know I believe at the core addiction is the disease of escape. Um, w- what that means is that when, when an individual is, is experiencing loneliness, profound loneliness, and we'll talk a little bit later on the treatment side, how we combat that. But when a person is experiencing loneliness, they, they, they look out to others and they, they try to develop like a, 
um, almost an unrealistic presentation of who they are because they're concerned, they're fear, they're ashamed of who they, of what their core self is, and that that self won't be embraced or accepted by others. So this this internet, um, you know, fake sense of self, it, it not only does it not help creating a strong attachment, but it also reinforces this shame-based identity that uh, people don't really understand who they really are. So you mentioned Snapchat. Let me ask you if, if, uh, if you have an opinion, which form of technology or media do you find the most dangerous as it relates to addiction? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, believe it or not, I think gaming, gaming is, is a, is a very uh, subtle, but very dangerous, um, experience for for a young for a young person especially because it, gaming puts on a facade and certain games are oriented towards um you know they're very captivating they, they can draw a person in they're highly entertaining and the technology i mean the, the how they reconstruct real life imagery in today's you know in 2023 the gaming it's incredible um so besides it being a, a time killer but it, it's also it's it's a it's an unrealistic uh, presentation of the individual. So a person is, they, they present themselves in a certain way when it comes to who they are, their character, but it's not really them. And they're interacting with their friends vis-a-vis their, their character and their friend's character. Um, and, and that's not who they are. So they're, they're hiding behind the screen metaphorically, um, not being seen, not being embraced, not being accepted for who they truly are. Um, all the while creating this question mark of do they have value by you know, with if you strip away that game or that facade of who they present themselves as, who are they really? And that and that question mark it can be very de- detrimental to a person. And, and then you couple that with like the thrill that comes, you know, and and correct. You don't get that in any other, you know. Yeah, it's it's, it's impossible to recreate that. I mean, there's not that the gun battle is not the same in real life, you know. <laughs> so, or the race car, or you know, whatever the game is. Uh huh. Um, so a couple episodes ago, we yeah. had on Rabbi Shimon Russell, okay. uh, about raising a loving family. And if you didn't listen to that episode yet, I highly recommend everyone go back after you finish this one to go yeah. listen to that. Um, and he, and he, he was talking about the OTD phenomenon, people going off the dark, leaving, you know, people who growing up in a from family, um, an, uh, an Orthodox family leaving that, um, way of life. And he talks about that every single well, well, he he mentioned that at first he was offended when he saw articles written that it's only for people that are leave, that are living in dysfunctional homes, and mm. that's just not true. He talked about his own children that were struggling, and uh, they came from a very uh, functional home. And the what he you know the rebuttal that he wrote to these articles um, are that really the cause is trauma, and yeah. trauma means to. Um, kind of like addiction, like escape, you know, disconnect, et cetera. Um, so when it comes to addiction, can you explain how trauma leads to addiction? And then do you deal with the addiction or do you deal with the trauma or are they really one and the same? Walk us through that process. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a huge topic. Um, you know, I would say definitely there's a strong interplay between those that experience trauma traumatic experiences and, and addiction. There's a tremendous correlation between the two. It's not limited to, uh, to trauma-based addiction, if you will, but there's definitely a strong correlation. 
Um, and there's tons of books and, and, and really educate, you know, tons of education out there. And I would encourage, you know, people who are, are interested in learning more about it um, to, to, you know, to get out there and, and identify the, the resources. Um, but if, if, you know, if you think, if you think of trauma in terms of developing a, a self-identity, right? Um, somebody that experiences a traumatic event, very often, um, and again, when you think of a traumatic event, there's two types of traumatic events, right? You have, um, let's call it military trauma, which is something external. A person could experience a car crash or, um, or some type of you know, tremendous, tremendously impactful accident that could be traumatic. Um, and, and they start to question core components of, of reality, like trust, like security. Um, these are fundamental concepts that if a person experiences a traumatic event, they start to challenge that, uh, which shifts their equilibrium. And, and then you have other types of trauma, which is um, an example of another type of trauma is, you know, you have abuse or neglect. Um, neglect is, is a, it's a type of trauma that is very soft and happens over years. Um, as an example, you could have an individual who, um, whose parents are preoccupied to no fault of their own. They're busy making a living. They're busy keeping the roof, you know, keeping the lights on, managing other children. And the child feels neglected by them, right? Uh, there's nothing external that happened, no big car crash, no house burning down. But yet, over a sustained period of time, that child is, feels neglected. So, in like uh, acute trauma? Yeah. Yeah. And they feel neglected. And, and what happens is they start to develop a belief system. Do they have value? Um, are, are, they, are they capable of being seen and loved? Right. And their identity, they take on this, tr- this trauma-based identity, um, which, which again, shapes their thinking and shapes their personality. Um, and, and and there's no deeper pain than a person who doesn't feel as he like he has core value. So if somebody is then, you know, this just happens at eight, nine, 10. And then by the time they're 15, 16, they have this, this identity, this core identity that is, you know, trauma based in, in a way. Um, or that identity could be developed through an experience, you know, sexual abuse or, or another type of way. And now their personality type is such of, you know, abandon or shame, and they find drugs or alcohol to, to help soothe themselves. So in that presentation, in that clinical presentation, absolutely, part of, you know, part of uh, the treatment is going to be addressing that underlying trauma. Um, you know, part of, part of when we talk about treatment, it's really important to differentiate between what I like to call levels of care. Um, so the person shows up to your office or shows up home drunk, or they just, you know, crashed the car, God forbid, because they were smoking marijuana or whatever event took place to trigger those around that individual that they're struggling. The first step is really stabilization. Stabilization is really creating space between the cycle of addiction and the individual themselves. Very often changing the environment of what the person is living is important, right? Obviously, you want to put down the drug or the, or, or, you know, or, or the behavior, stop the behavior. 
because you want to create space between the individual, their thinking, and this experience of getting high of escapism. That cycle of addiction needs to be put on pause. Um, and that we call that stabilization. Very often there's detox that's required, a medical detox that's required, emotional detox that's required. And that's phase one of treatment. Um, during phase one, very often that's where the diagnostics start to take place. A person, you know, goes through a battery of tests, questionnaires, um, starts to build rapport with some kind of therapeutic team. And they we, we come up with, with a diagnosis, what's going on. Very often we want to identify where the addiction is, what are those triggers for the behavior on the behavior level. And then you want to start to get deeper beneath, you know, beneath the surface of what caused that addiction. And I think that's exactly what you're referring to, where if it's trauma-based, then the work in recovery is going to be to rewrite their narrative and reframe their identity based on those experiences. And does the addiction part like kind of heal on its own or now you're able to work? Yeah, absolutely. Because again, if you think about it, the behavior addiction is it's a reaction. It's a reaction to it's a flawed solution. It's a person is going to that behavior because they're uncomfortable because they're in emotional pain. So if once a person moves away from being in emotional pain, then they don't have a need to escape, right? Addiction is the disease of escape. But if a person is, feeling healthy and self-fulfilled and accomplished and validated and loved and embraced and accepted and productive and functional, then they don't need to escape. And they definitely don't need the consequences of, you know, of all the cheating and lying and stealing that goes involved in, in, in keeping their addiction strong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How relevant or prevalent would you say addiction is in the Jewish community? Um. <clears throat> I like to say that there's so much beauty in the Jewish community. I think that if you compare the Jewish community to other communities on a macro level, we have strong family systems. We have a lot of direction and structure and guidance in our community within the fabric of our community. So fundamentally, you know, we're definitely kind of winning the odds, if you will. Um, But we we definitely have those issues. Um, Addiction exists in our community. It's eked its way into the most secure family systems. Um, you know, I've been seeing issues with of addiction for, you know, 20 years now. Literally, my, my initial exposure was in 2001. Um, so it, it's been here. It's here to stay. And, and, you know, the conversation now is really about understanding that there's a roadmap to, to recovery. There are solutions. There are systems involved. There's evidence-based protocols to treat addiction. And uh, there's tons of recovery support. Um, around really across the globe um, for our community within our community. We had on on a previous episode, Dr. Lewin Fon, who's the uh, chair department of psychiatry here at the Ohio Mm -hmm. state university. And um, he mentioned that there's a statistic that one out of every five is struggling with mental health and COVID may have increased that to two out of five subsequently. But, um, But he said really mental health is five out of five not just because everyone needs to manage their own mental health, but also someone who's going through mental health, it affects not just them, but their whole, you know, environment, their coworkers, their family members, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So chances are, I would imagine that even if someone himself is, is free of addiction, 
but there's someone they know that might be going through something or someone they know who's affected by someone who's going through something. So what's your advice to the everyday person that may not be addicted themselves, but they're witnessing stuff around them? Yeah, I, I would say that um, I, I, can, I can tell you that I've never experienced an interaction uh, of somebody, you know, that has reached out to myself or anyone within our network uh, for support that was not motivated by somebody else that they reached out to first. Mm-hmm. In other words, they had a conversation with a family member, with a friend. That friend validated the struggle and encouraged the individual then to pick up that 10,000 pound phone and make the call. So I would say that it's critical if you know somebody or if you have a family member, Khalila, who's struggling, be there for that person because you are the bridge for that person to enter into the world of recovery. Mm-hmm. Very often it's frustrating. It's painful. We are the victims of those around us because the addict or the individual struggling with addiction is, is, you know, manipulating and is lying and is cheating and is aggressive and, and all of that stuff, all those behaviors is a cry for help. And they want nothing more than to alleviate the pain and the burden of addiction. And I can't tell you how many times people have shared with me when their wife found out about the fact that they were struggling with addiction or when their mom or when their dad or when their friend, it was a sigh of relief because they were discovered. And that discovery led to an intervention, which led to them entering recovery. Mm-hmm. So for those of us around the individual struggling, be there, be a listening ear and offer support because it really could spell the difference between life and death for this individual. Yeah. Sometimes like when people know that someone's struggling with a physical health issue, uh, take the most extreme case, someone unfortunately has cancer, you gravitate, gravitate towards them to offer support. Sometimes with mental health, you take a step backwards, Yes, but, but the exact opposite it's, you could be that person to introduce them to the road of recovery sounds like correct 100 percent, absolutely and it, and it changes the entire environment as well mm-hmm. um you know we we at, at our various different recovery programs are very mindful that we're not just treating the individual but we're really treating the individual within their family system mm-hmm. it's a systemic approach to healing mm-hmm. uh, because we are we don't we don't live on an island everyone every individual interacts with multiple layers multiple systems and it's critical that not just the individual uh, needs to be helped and assisted, but it's really the entire family system that needs to change. Someone once said, I overheard someone in this field saying, and, and I didn't really like hearing it, but I want to bring it up so we could discuss it, maybe debunk sure. it. Um, once addicted, always addicted. Yeah, I, I don't like that line. Um, I, I think that you know where it stems from is that there's ongoing maintenance, if you will, that needs to take place. Mm. Um, you know, I would compare it to um, hypertension or uh, diabetes as an example, right? A person, once there's a clarity, once there's a di- diagnosis of addiction, there, there's always a, a place where that individual will be vulnerable to a relapse. And part of their recovery is a certain maintenance plan to ensure that they don't go back to that unhealthy thinking and to obviously their disruptive and self-destructive behaviors. So, you know, the way I conceptualize that whole phrase or that whole comment is 
that yes, a person can enter in recovery um, and be free from the pain and the burden of addiction forever, but they will need to maintain a certain lifestyle. They will need to re- maintain certain energy, certain output in order to ensure that they don't um, fall into, um, you know, fall into their old ways, if you will. Um, you know, the diabetic that needs to prick himself and, and modulate his blood sugar forever, that's something that, that needs to take place. And there are times that it could spike and he will end up back in the hospital. Um, but so long as he balances his life, the person that experienced a heart attack, as long as they keep up with their exercise regimen and, and they eat their healthy, balanced meal diet, um, they're going to be okay and they're going to thrive and be very successful. Mm-hmm. So where it may stem from is because once someone's addicted, they're never, it's never going to be no longer part of their life. Correct. And, and, and it's always part of their life. Correct. It is always part of their life, but that, that, that's, that's not a, um, it, it, it doesn't mean that a person has, is handcuffed by it. A person is empowered by it. A person is motivated and, and maybe even required to continue sharpening the tools of recovery, uh, which are clearly outlined for individual and clearly accessible for all individuals, uh, you know, a, a, across the world. That- um, so there's, oh, there's ongoing work. Uh, you know, I, I think another analogy is, is, um, you know, you can have somebody that studies in a higher education. They can travel to Israel and go to yeshiva and study in an intense way. Uh, but if they don't maintain a certain regimen, they're going to fall off the wagon and they're going to lose their relationship with God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that must be hard to swallow. Someone who becomes addicted to something and, and it's real addiction. And then they realize that this is going to be a part of my life the rest of my life. That's got to be hard yeah. to swallow. Tell us, walk us through. Yeah, the process. it is, it is, it is hard. I can tell you that those, those individuals that are in long-term recovery, they're the most stable, um, functional, um, headstrong individuals that I've met. Um, they are the ones who, you know, navigated a challenge and built a certain muscle mass around it. You know, it's like, it's like you have two people that are climbing up a ladder, right? And one person falls off the ladder and gets back on and climbs up and then falls off again and gets back on. And the other person is kind of making a straight line up when they both get to the top, you know, whose legs are stronger, right? It's the person who fell off multiple times and got back on because he built stronger muscles. So maybe by way of encouragement or maybe by way of uh, embracing the reality is that once a person um, engages in recovery, they're going to need to maintain a certain regimen in order to sustain that recovery. Mm-hmm. But just to go with your metaphor, if someone sure. keeps falling off, then they're going to be hurting themselves and maybe they're just not going to be as efficient as, you know, anyone else. They, they you know, they're they, now, now they're handicapped. They fell down so hard. Yeah. Alone, you know, how do you understand? Yeah. It? It's going to be a lot more challenging for that person. There's no question about it. I mean, the, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, a person that's struggling with addiction will have that, that presentation their entire life. And do you find that people could really make a big comeback and thrive as a result? Absolutely. That's what I was outlining. I've seen, I've seen it. I see it all day. Um, and I got to tell you, it's very inspiring when you see people working through their pain and confusion and implementing some of the tools that they're given. Um, it's, it's incredible. The level of patience, the level of honesty, the level of work ethic. Um, but what, what, I'm, what I'm specifically referring to is that, and then they are, above and beyond where they were previously to before. Absolutely. 
Correct. They are. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, th- those tools are so much sharper because they were they were challenged in every in every way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they will continue to maintain. They have to maintain their recovery program. Um, but with maintaining that, they're 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 unbelievable people. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I want to know if you'll answer the next question. It's a okay. hot. It's a hot topic. It's been unfortunately gaining acceptance. I don't know if it's gaining acceptance. It's been gaining um, uh, control. But that's the that's the topic of marijuana. Um, yeah. Do you have a take on it? Recreational marijuana. Do you, have, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah. On it? Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a very real and re- relevant question. Um, you, are you referring to the legalization of recreational use? Well, I don't know. That's a good question. I, I wasn't really necessarily referring to that because I don't know if it makes a difference. Someone who wants it will get it. So, yeah. but, you know, putting putting policy and politics aside, just the regular use of it for someone. I mean, or, or you know what? Fine. Let's 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 uh, take on both parts of it. Is there a necessary time for marijuana that you would encourage or you would accept? And is there not a time and where you think that? Um, it's not appropriate and it could, you know, potentially be harmful. Yeah. So the way I, the way I, I mean, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think the details perhaps are beyond the scope of this conversation, but I, you know, the, the kind of guiding principle um, around this is, is twofold. Um, number one, there's, there's going to be, um, there's, there's always going to be a presentation, whether it's medical or psychiatric, that is going to require um, something beyond the scope of normal intervention. Um, so, for instance, if you have somebody that's experienced uh, pain, physical pain, they, 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 they went through a car crash and they've tried many, many, many different layers of medication and uh, physical therapy. Um, and I know that a lot of medical providers are, are now prescribing marijuana as a, uh, you know, as a um, as a pain as a painkiller of, of sorts. Um, so, so when you deal with the extremes, that, that's not what I'm going to answer towards. Right. I'm not talking about the extremes. So there's going to be on one side of the spectrum extreme medical or clinical presentation, psychiatric presentation that's going to require a different scope of intervention. Sure. Um, but, but I'm talking about for the, for the regular guy, the normal mm-hmm. um, American kid, if you will, um, the legalization of recreational marijuana use will definitely pose a very real set of challenges because it's more accessible, uh, similar to what we're referring to with, um, with you know, the, 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 the pornography or some of the internet stuff that we were referring right. to. Right. Um, I think I go back to the fundamental concept, which is it's never about the behavior. It's about the relationship with the behavior. So if a person is, you know, healthy, grounded, stable, and, um, you know, they, they experience a, a marijuana high, it's not going to, it's not going to kill them. It, it probably won't cause any damage, but if a person is struggling uh, with a, a, a flawed sense of self and he is uh, low self-esteem and experienced a trauma and they find an escape, they're going to, they're going to leech onto that escape and they're going to use it to numb their pain. That's when it becomes a problem. And do you find it to be a, a gateway drug? So again, I think it's the relationship. If the relationship is used as a, as a gate, as an escape, then that experience is a gateway drug. Absolutely. Because the person found a solution, a flawed solution, mm-hmm. and he's going to chase that flawed solution until right? Until it becomes dependency. So there are two components. There's the substance and then the relationship. And if it's there, then it could lead to the next. Exactly. 
And that's really what we do in recovery is we really yeah. try to reframe the experience with the individual. We reframe the fact that, you know, yes, they were dependent on the drug or the alcohol. And, and yes, that experience, that cycle of addiction was paralyzing to them. But the reason why is because they were dealing with something else. So mm-hmm. we want to differentiate between the individual and the, and the, and the use. So they are not an addict. They were struggling with addiction, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are various different modalities of treatment that we implement. Mm-hmm. Um, cognitive restructuring is a very, very used, utilized uh, modality. Obviously, for some of the trauma-based, you know, some of the trauma, the, the, the individual that experienced trauma, we have EMDR. Sure. Um, you know, we have IFS work. Um, I mean, our, our team is comprised of, of you know, many, many, many dozens of clinicians uh, with specialty trainings. And very often, different individuals uh, react differently to different modalities of treatment. So on the front end, you want to do comprehensive assessment in order to pair the person up with the right uh, modality of treatment based on their presentation, their unique, you know, individual template. Right. I I was always, I I wonder a lot, is there anyone who, who went to like hardcore drugs that didn't first go through marijuana? I was wondering that that's something that I'm always wondering. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen it. I've uh, seen it. Yeah. Marijuana may, might make it easier, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Correct. I want to go to, um, as we, um, sort of, uh, run out of time. I say sort of, because you never know what comes out of the conversation, <laughs> but, um, you mentioned to me in our previous conversation, something called religious trauma. Yeah. I wonder if you could define that, explain, you know, uh, educate our listeners a little bit about what that is and how you deal with it. Yeah. So we have a unique track in our program, actually led by uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Devorah Shabtai, um, who really um, specializes in, in this in this modality, uh, in this program, um, where individuals uh, are struggling based on, on on the communities that they come from. Um, we're, we're coining it as religious trauma, and it, it's really less about the practice of religion, but it's more the association with religion. Um, and, and that's when we refer to religious trauma. We don't, we're not referring to um, the actual practice of, of Yiddishkeit or Judaism or, or, or any um, belief system. It's, it's really the association that that has. So if a person experienced a negative experience, a traumatic experience in a shul, right? So for him, the shul represents something toxic um and 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 the goal of as we process this with the individual and as they enter into recovery we we try to differentiate between the shul as the bad environment or the unhealthy environment and what took place in that room or in that environment and same thing with family systems and same thing with different schools um whether a person went to a yeshiva and experienced that association so when we refer to religious trauma that's exactly what we're talking about we're talking about the association between um, the individual and that experience. And my final question or almost final question, can you share with us some of the guidance that you've received from different Rabbanim that you've spoken to some of the Das Torah that you've received? Sure. Sure. Thank you. Um, You know, I remember I was actually um, when I was um, in Fordham university, which is a Jesuit school in New York city, um, so I would take classes all Thursday. It was, that was my class day. It was once a week. And in the evening, I would, I would come back and I had a, a Seder, actually, a learning a Harusa with um, a tremendous Tamachacham. He was a Mashkiach in the Yeshiva. Um, he was actually a trained, Fordham, uh, it was a, a, um, a trained psychologist. 
um, Harvard trained psychologist actually, and it was a tremendous hamachacham as well. And and I would literally uh, review the, the coursework with this individual um, to try to differentiate what's considered, you know, what's what's true, what's not true, what's textbook, what's um, you know, and, and that was kind of like my beginning uh, of processing it. And then as I moved into private practice and really caring for individuals, um, creating policies for programs, um, I was very, very, I got very close with Shmuel Kamenetsky, who was very, very helpful in shaping some of the philosophy of the program and, and really directing some of the nuts and bolts on how to, how to create a, a rehab, a, a rehabilitation program for a from client, for a Jewish, for, for a Jewish person. Um, you know, obviously you're dealing with Pikuach Nefesh, you're dealing with life and death, and um, you're dealing with, you know, real, real Chachmas HaGayim, and, and how to navigate all of that is some, something that uh, my conversations at length with, 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 with members of, uh, you know, with members of our community is something that I was always had an affinity towards and always did in a very, uh, you know, proactive way. Um, you know, now I'm very close with Rishmuel First from Chicago, who's, uh, you know, a POSIG um, when it comes to, again, black and white questions regarding um, different life and death questions at, as it comes through. So it, it's important. I think it's relevant. A lot of people, you know, they, they ask about the kosher food. And, and while, while that's important and, and necessary for some people, um, when you're dealing with treatment, um, you know, it, it's really about the, um, the clinical philosophy um, that's geared for an individual that has a certain value system and has certain exposure to, 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 to Hashem and to Yadus. And to be able to navigate both is something very, very important. And my final, final question. Okay. Um, you, you, you take in a lot. I mean, you're, you're seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of issues. Um, that's got to take a toll. So how does Moshe Yachnes stay healthy? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it's interesting. Many, many years ago, um, there was a uh, there's a story that is told about uh, Reb David Feinstein. I'm sorry, Reb David Leibowitz, who uh, was a Talmud of the Altar of Slabatka, and he learned in Europe. Um, and and he um, he would talk a lot about uh, the concept that he, he would say it in Yiddish, "Tan nisht aftan," which means to do and not to get done. Um, and I think that that's a very important construct to hold on to, where. Our job as a provider, as a service provider, is to put in the 60-second minutes to be there, to lean on the textbook, to understand and build a very strong clinical team. But ultimately, the results are not up to us. The results are up to the individual um, choosing to change their life. And yes, I'm exposed to tremendous amounts of pain um, and and pretty chaotic situations. Um, so the way I cope with it personally is to recognize that the results are not up to up to me or up to us. We can only try to help this individual. Um, and the other the other part that um, that I, I lean on very in a very serious way is the courage of this of, of those individuals. Um, it's inspiring. I, I got to tell you, people people ask me this question a lot, like you know, how do you stay so positive and optimistic? And I said that if you hear. The, the level of courage that I'm exposed to on a daily basis, it's amazing. People have been through the most chaotic experiences and to no fault of their own. And despite all of that, they're willing to work through their stuff. It's really inspiring. And I, I walk away from a day and a week empowered and, and, and almost charged by, by the individuals that I, I, I have the opportunity to connect with. So what 
others might find draining, you find yeah. inspiring. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Love that take on that. Love that take. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you've been so generous with your time. It's been an honor and a privilege. It was a, it was an honor to meet you in person in Florida, and uh, yeah. so happy that we got to virtually reconnect. And, and thank you for coming on and educating our audience. Um, and if anyone needs to, uh, if someone knows, uh, if someone themselves or knows someone that needs help, how can they um, get in touch with your services? Um, they could, um, I, I give you my cell number is always the best way. It's a seven, eight, six, eight, seven, seven, one, four, six, one. Uh, if I don't answer, please leave a message. I might take a day or two to get back to you, but, uh, if I could be helpful on any level, uh, it'd be my pleasure. Wow. Very brave of you to share that on there, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, it goes to speak that if it's, if you feel that this is your mission, then whatever it is. So thank, thank you. you. To listen to all Colo's episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colo's on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colo's is a project of the Columbus Community Colo, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.